Hello, sexy nerds of the Nerd Imperium. Welcome to this week's episode of the Currently Nerdy Podcast. We are your inner conclave of nerdum. My name is Diz, and I'm your pop culture and sports nerd. Ali? I am Ali, your classic nerd. And I'm V, your comic nerd. Yo. So, Yo. let's um point out the elephant in the room. Are you calling me fat? No, man, it's fucked up. I don't body shame. Um, so, one of us is no longer a West Coaster. I know. What, what is this? Mm-hmm. Is this? Am I East Coast? Am I Midwest? What is this? Nah, man. Philadelphia is the East Coast, bro. Yeah, there's, East Coast. There's, a, there's actually a debate because people, in, if you go further into Pennsylvania, if you head uh, westward, mm-hmm. uh, they go, no, that's Midwest. Right, like no. Pittsburgh and after is Midwest. But if you tell Philly people like, oh, is Pennsylvania Midwest? They get angry. Like, no, we're East Coast. So there's like a real elite is like when they talk about like coastal elite, there is a minor like coastal elite. Like, don't you dare call us Midwest. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the same thing in Virginia, right? So it's like if you call anyone north of Richmond outside of, okay, north and like west or east of richmond mm. like um sa- southern besides like maybe like fredericksburg and shit right. they get kind of offended right like because like me being from northern virginia like if you say like i'm from the south i'm like no i'm from the east coast it's different right right, right. even though i'm technically south of the mason dixon line but yeah. like right am i south of the mason dixon line in uh northern virginia yeah where's the mason dixon line the mason dixon <laughs> line goes through richmond doesn't it Oh shit! So yeah, I'm north of the Mason. Hold on, let's, fi- let's let's find out. You keep talking, and I want to Google this because Lord knows I don't know shit about American geography. No, but like I get like a like sometimes I'll claim to be southern, right? Like when people tell me I'm nice, I'm like, yeah, it's that southern hospitality, and a lot of the like the music that like we grew up listening to. So yeah, the like- Mason Dixon line uh, c- includes Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, Virginia, West Virginia. It stops at Pennsylvania, apparently. Oh shit! Yeah, so it goes um, pretty high up, I guess. Yeah, I didn't know that. No, but um, yeah, I guess we're south in the Mason-Dixon line, but Northern Virginians do not like to be called Southerners for right. the most part. Like East and Coasters. Yeah, we're East Coasters, right? Because so we take a lot of influence um, culturally from like New York, you yeah. know. And well, like I think it's the, the DC thing, right? It's like yeah, it's such a, you can't call DC a Southern state, a Southern city. No, right? Uh, it's it's very iconically East Coast. Yeah, without a doubt, and like. So sometimes like our music yeah. we will take from the South, right? So like if I like if I name these are like rap artists, you probably wouldn't know who they are, but like Three Six yeah, Mafia no and like, you know, like No Limit Soldiers, things like that. These are all like iconic Southern music, Bun B, UGK, um, like Mike Jones, all these guys are from like the South, like Texas, Louisiana, mm-hmm. Tennessee, right? Um it's it's an iconic southern music and we were big on that music but we also like were super big on like the notorious big and jay-z and um mm. like the dip set so like iconic east coast like new york sound was very like big in dc but then so is like southern like hip-hop so it's weird like i got like a mix of both cultures whereas like if you grew up somewhere like in atlanta like you weren't really big like you you knew about jay-z and like biggie and nas and stuff but like you weren't bumping them you know like they weren't your favorite artists your favorite artists were like outcast and like yeah. ludicrous and ti and stuff but, yeah, but you wouldn't if you were in atlanta you wouldn't call yourself east coast no you call yourself southern 
right? right? Isn't that interesting? Like our American geography, the way the America is divided up in that way, is so bizarre. I mean, someone rightly uh, geographer, I think a political geographer, a few. Uh, years back, made a map of the United States in which he divided up the United States and said, it's not actually one country. It's like six or seven countries, roughly, uh, Mm -hmm. that have a lot of like serious differences and then cultural commonalities. And then we pretend it's it's one big country. I mean, people, I think our listeners would be who've listened aren't surprised but and for the casual listener they'd be surprised that you, to hear that you actually grew up on the east coast that you grew up in virginia that you're not a socal boy no man born and raised uh right outside of dc springfield yeah, virginia spelled, baby. Spent most of your time actually east coast no at this point now my life was split 50 50 but so now it's, it's officially 50 50 actually more so in california if you think about really? it yeah because i spent five years when like in san diego in San Diego from like two to seven, I was in San Diego. Yeah. I was born in Virginia, moved back to Virginia when I was seven, but I had five years in San Diego and I've been here since 2006. Oh, then yeah. Yeah. So it's been like 18 years of my life has been spent in California, whereas 12 were in Virginia, but like my formative years were in Virginia, you know, like Mm. from one to two and then from seven till 16, I was in Virginia and it's like, and that's like when you really become yourself. And yeah, I've grown and matured more like here in Southern California. So like. But your formative years are East Coast. Yeah. But like a lot of my friends in like in Virginia, like they, they think of me as like some like West Coast hippie now. Right. <laughs> uh, I was making a joke with like one of my buddies. So like, like one of my, my best friends growing up, his name's Ralph. Um, uh, his, his, his name is Rauf, but he goes by Ralph, right? It's just the easy translation. Right. Um, he's got four children now, right? And uh, I was messing around, like, after I saw his, uh, after I saw his youngest son, like, the last time I was there. And I'm like, Ralph, bro, I'm like, at this point, you just got to get a vasectomy, man. You can't have any more kids. <laughs> and, and he was like, nah, man, I was telling my wife that she should get, like, her tubes tied. And I'm like, bro, get a vasectomy you could always reverse that shit if you want he's like man see you become a west coast hippie feminist you're signing you're signing with my wife in this situation and not me <laughs> like so they see me as like this west coast uh like hippie feminist now like it's weird uh, just just because like i've been here for the past 13 years there's a lot that i've taken from california like right. i'm a i'm a lot more left than a lot of my left-leaning friends in the east coast which is like oh, see, that's super weird right well, my crew is is predominantly academics, and academics come from all over. There's not a lot of academics like, oh yeah, I was born and raised here in Philly, and now I work here, because mm-hmm. academics move right, and they move a lot. Yeah. Uh, most people don't know that. Is that. If you ever look at your college professors, they're generally from all over the place. Very few of them are, are local, um, and and so I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who are just like me, who've come from all over the United States. Just a bunch of transplants, dude. Just what is it like, man? Are you you've been there what four yeah. days now? Yeah, I've been there a few days. Um, I've checked out. I've door dashed a lot. Okay, uh, but I have I've checked out the area a little bit. Uh, Philly's nice. Again, it's nice to see like an actual city. Uh, I think mm-hmm. being in Orange County, you have the living experience of of kind of feeling like you're in a city, but not really being in a city. You know what I mean? Like anyone who's been to Orange County knows what I'm talking about. Orange County is actually one big city with suburbs is the way that I describe it, right? Like Mission V, Hill, Lisa V. Those are suburbs, not yeah, actual right? cities, the way that it works. But it's a it's a faux city. It's not a real city. It's meant to feel like one, but it's very homogenous. 
Mm -hmm. uh, in comparison to actual cities. It's different. So it was very nice that one of the things that I saw was like, there's a lot of diversity in Philadelphia. It's very different. There's actual cultures and like small communities of people with their own foods and their own. So that, that's been kind of nice. The weather has not been pleasant. It's very muggy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been living off of AC, but it's not like as bad as I thought it'd be. I was very worried about it. I'm out of the city. I'm not in Philly itself. I'm in some suburb somewhere. Yeah. Um, but so it's not as bad as inside Philly, but when I arrived at the airport and I went outside, I went, Oh my God, this is unbearably muggy. So the city is bad. Outside, less so. And then the university uh, is is gorgeous. Penn State is. I saw it during the winter when mm-hmm. it was snowing, and it was beautiful. But it was very like winter wonderland, right? Like yeah, yeah. ice, snow, dead things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the. It's literally just a forest university. So it's it's absolutely gorgeous. I'll send you guys some pictures. Um, and yeah, so so far so good. It really just at this point in time, it's mostly transition shit. When you move. You, it's been, it's, it takes a month or two before you actually unpack everything that's <laughs> settled down. Yeah, yeah. And you also realize during the process just how much shit you collect over the years. Ah. Um, yo, you getting there was a fucking mess, though. It was a total nightmare, but it, it is what it is. I, you know what was really interesting is as I was flying, we flew through a thunderstorm. Oh, shit. And so, like, we could see red flat, and it was interesting. It was red lightning, which is gorgeous. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, but it was, it was a very surreal, surreal experience. But, you know, talking about weird changes and, and, and moves and whatnot, in the film world, it seems like the exact opposite is happening. Our childhood is coming back. It's not like we're not going through weird transitions. We're reverting back to when we were young. All the movies that we like grew up with and all the movies that we saw when we were young adults are being remade or new sequels are being made or what. I mean, I remember there was someone was joking the other day, Jumanji, Aladdin, <laughs> you know, like yeah, the shit, Lion King. Lion King. Toy Story 4. If someone like, cause like someone from the future came back and looked up at our, uh, you know, the theaters now playing, whatever they call that, the sign or whatever, they would confuse it with the early nineties. Right, they would just be like, yeah. Oh, I must have, I must have stopped in the early nineties. And now we hear news of, another movie sequel coming out the matrix we were in what middle school high school when it came out v you were we were eighth grade right ninth grade i want to say 1999 2000 so probably eighth grade yeah maybe yeah it was was the turn of the century when the matrix came i love saying turn of the century makes you you sound old don't don't say that (laughs) but no um i I remember watching the original matrix right oh yeah um and I'll get more into that, but what we've heard today, right? So today being August 20th um, is- In the year uh, of our Lord, 2019. Yeah. Um, uh, it, on Variety, they uh, announced that Matrix 4 is officially a go. Yeah. And they're getting uh, Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, and then Lana Wachowski. So yeah. listen, when we first started out watching The Matrix, all right, it was the Wachowski brothers. Mm-hmm. And and I think both of them transitioned, if not mm-hmm. just one, right? Mm-hmm. I know for sure Lana transitioned. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if um, the other one transitioned. But, um, dude, I don't know what to think, man. Because I'm gonna I'm gonna go into like my initial viewing of the Matrix, mm-hmm. and 
I remember thinking the original Matrix was revolutionary, mm-hmm. right? Like watching that, like the the fucking him bending bullets or mm-hmm. him doing that, like leaning back, or they just they just call it the Matrix move now, right? Where like he leans back and like dodges the bullets and shit. Um, like we had never seen that in film before, mm-hmm. and like it's been mimicked millions of times since, right? You you always have that fucking scene of like. Uh, Trinity doing like the crane kick and it goes in slow mm-hmm. motion and she kicks the person. Like you see that on every fucking like spoof movie there is. Um, but like it was revolutionary at the time, like the graphics for it, the story arc behind it. And it did really well in the box office. Like it was one of the, it was one of the biggest like theatrical releases of the year 2000 or yeah. 99, 2000, if not the biggest release that year. And then they followed it with two very subpar uh yeah. sequels. Well, subpar right? would be a word for him, Diz. Uh <laughs> but you know we maybe we shouldn't use that language on this podcast. What 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 are you fucking appropriating golf terms? No, I don't know. I think Ali, uh, since he's moved to Philadelphia, he's become much more cultured and distinguished. We can't be using bad words in front of him anymore. Oh, we can't say subpar. Oh, okay. Or Sorry. There were subpar. two very shitty <laughs> singles. I, I didn't I didn't get this joke. What is what is I figured, you know, you highfalutin, you know, East Coast University people, they're too good to be using us work working class words like shitty. Just assume <laughs> well, no, I, I thought just, you had an issue with subpar. No. <laughs> no, I said there was other words that need to be used. Okay. Yeah. Go on, yeah. So look, man. When you had two like great or you had one great movie like The Matrix and like everyone wanted a sequel, right? Because like that whole fucking Neo becoming the one at the end of the movie and like resurrecting and stuff. And there's a lot of symbology in there. And I'll let you deal with like the Mm -hmm. symbology in that because you're the fucking metaphor expert. Mm -hmm. Um, But like when you came out with the what was it the matrix reloaded and then revelations was it the, the other one called and then revel isn't revel was it, was it revelations was it it's no, revolutions, one, uh, and there's the animatrix revolution. which is actually pretty good i heard yeah the, i heard the animatrix the final was really one good. called then the final one was revolutions then what's the second one called reloaded reloaded that's the run yeah, yeah. So they were released, both of them were released in 2003, right? So uh, the first one came out in March of 2003, and the second one came out in November of 2003. So they came out within within the same year. Mm. They didn't do the whole waiting a year thing like most fucking movies do now, or in the case of Star Wars, making you wait two years before they come out with another one. Seriously. Um, but like The Matrix Reloaded, it wasn't bad, right? Like they had some like cool car chase scenes and stuff, and those two fucking twins were kind of dope, you know. Like, yeah, uh, the ghost, and then yeah, and then you had the Matrix Revolutions, and it was just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, yeah. this storyline just became like so shitty. Well, like, I'm not, I'm not sure if it was ever meant to be a trilogy. I'm not sure. Maybe it was because but one of the things about the Matrix is that it doesn't leave on a cliffhanger. It, it doesn't solve everything. Mm-hmm. But it, it is it is cathartic. It's like, all right, we know where this is headed now, right? Yes. Uh, and so it could, as as a standalone, it could totally work as a standalone movie. But then I mm-hmm. think the desire, because it, it was, and you rightly put it, so revolutionary in some regards. I mean, we can, if we ever did an episode on like movies that changed filmmaking, that's one of them, right? Like mm-hmm. you can go 
pre-matrix and post-matrix in regards to filmmaking, uh, particularly in terms of combat, right? So the type of fighting style. Um, it's a very different type of action flick than previous movies. I mean, the combination of martial arts with guns, uh, the combination of even just the cinematography, right? Slow, slow motion, but also the type of angles that they did. So like when he's dodging the bullets, the kind of the way it would sweep down uh, and onto the side, like that's, you could easily put it that way. I think in some regards that revolutionary component and, and its financial success and kind of critical success in, encourage them to continue and that became a problem right it's like mm-hmm. the, the need to like all right well, we got to make another one resulted in movies that just weren't that good right and as v noted animatrix is great but i think the, really? also what ends up happening is that there is a need to turn everything up with every single sequel right yeah so they're going to oh, yeah, sit yeah. there and matrix one you know is pretty amazing and it's pretty revolutionary but they went well we got to do Matrix 2 and 3, it's got to be something that's even more exciting uh, than the first one or the one that preceded it. So uh, I think they emphasized less of kind of that storyline and more of kind of the action. And they turned it in, yeah. in from being this kind of this action movie with kind of a cerebral twist to it to just a plain action movie where they thought that throwing more technology at it would make it more interesting. When in actuality, yeah. the writing really suffered um, from, you know, from its lack of artistic mm-hmm. direction in that sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think also like, you know, one of the things is that I've always said this about movies that have a lot of high graphics. It's got to be done deftly uh, and it's got to be a light touch. Yeah. I'm a big believer in, in and, and, and I get it. Look, computer generated graphics, computer graphics, all that stuff. It's amazing now, right? I, I We were mm-hmm. remarking the other day that the Game of Thrones game look so realistic that we never imagined games to look like that when we were growing up. Absolutely. Right. It looks like the, it actually looked like the actors. You didn't have that. You could recognize voices in games back in the, Oh, it's so-and-so, but you would never be like, Oh yeah, that looks like so-and-so. They never did. Right. Like go, go play Knights of the old Republic and compare as And that's a, considered a great game. Consider the graphics of Knights of the Old Republic to say like the modern Game of Thrones game. Absolutely. There's a vast difference between the two of them. But what, we're, what we see is that when you rely so heavily on those computer graphics, when you rely so heavily on those type of graphics, that it does do something to the movie. I think The Hobbit, for example, suffered from this very badly. I've mentioned this on the podcast like a million times. A scene where, where he's, he's walking on the melted gold, right? You're yeah, just like, yeah. It just doesn't look right. It looks funky. It just it it pulls you out of the movie. And I think that's what happened in two and three Matrix. The first Matrix had a lot of computer graphics and whatnot, but it was deftly done. It was subtle. And then in the second one, you had that scene where like Agent Smith, there was like a million Agent Smiths or whatnot. And so like the fighting was literally so cheesy at one because there was this, like he was picking up Agent Smith and swinging him around, but it would slow down, and you're like that looks like a cartoon that doesn't look real. And I think that, you know, it not only hurt the storyline, but also just hurt in terms of like how things looked, it was not as well done of a movie that said it was still a turning point. The matrix is a big deal. So I'm excited to see, you know, the return of the matrix. I mean, this is a weird moment. Like 
movies that we saw what, almost 20 years ago now. I just, here's my, my beef, right? Because, like, as much as, like, the last two movies weren't good, there was, like, a cathartic a cathartic moment in the end of, like, the, the third one, right? Where fucking, spoiler alert, Keanu Reeves saved the world, you know? And, like, he sacrificed himself to save Zion. Mm-hmm. And, like, what are you going to do now? Like, oh we're just going to reboot the whole thing and start it over again or yeah i'm like, not sure what the fourth one is about did they get does they say anything uh, about story not really there hasn't really been much other than the fact that they've kind of greenlit it and it's going to get worked yeah. on now yeah so i'm wondering then, like which direction because he's dead right yeah he died in it right if i'm not mistaken he died yeah, yeah. i mean it was it right. was a pretty you know it was a fine it was an ending that was you know that's pretty final there was no a whole lot of uh, loose ends in terms of and, yeah, that and, character arc, and they're very clear. This isn't a reboot, right? They're not rebooting. They the haven't. Same I mean, some people they haven't actually made clear what it is yet. A lot of people are saying, you know, what they should do is they should uh, do what they do with X Men and just cut uh, cut the the last two from canon and then make this like after Matrix One. Uh, we'll, yeah, which that'd is be not a bad idea. I think there's a lot of interest. I mean, it depends on the quality of the writing too, but given the way the technology and the direction in which technology, especially online technology has gone, there's a lot of, you know, interesting philosophical questions that can, that could be discussed in a movie like this. And the matrix, by, you know, by no means is outdated in its concept, I think. So, you know, there's some pretty cool possibilities here. Well, this is the thing that I've, that I wanted to talk about, right? Is in many ways that matrix, uh, represented a very interesting moment. So the Matrix came out in 1999 and in 2000, right? Right at the, as Diz uh, put it, the turn of the century, uh. right? <laughs> Technically the turn of the millennia. Um, I mean, yeah. But it, both. but it was also that that was the moment where uh, we there was a lot of anxiety about technology, right? At that moment, the, this was the beginning of the, the fear of the Y2K, right? Remember that? Uh, the the fear yeah, it was right when the Y two K scare was going on. There was Y two K going on. This was right in the middle of the tech boom, uh, and and the explosion of internet technology in a way that really didn't exist before. I mean, the internet's been around since the eighties, right? But really, it's the late nineties, early two thousands where the internet explodes. Uh, and so there was a moment. In many ways, the Matrix represented that zeitgeist. It represented that particular. Uh, feeling of that era, the era of the new hacker, right? Because the hacker wasn't really a thing in the 80s. Mm-hmm. They existed, code crackers and whatnot, but now really hacking was really kind of a new thing. And so who are the who are the people in the Matrix? They're hackers first and foremost, right? The protagonists are all hackers. They're people who are able to hack into that, into, into computers and whatnot. And so the Matrix really speaks both to that moment, but also as a critique of that moment. Um, the Matrix is, um, symbolically does a lot of really interesting things. One, it draws heavily from uh, major literature motifs. So there's a lot of the kind of story arc, and the first one in particular is not um, too unusual to those who study literature, right? The hero's journey is very obvious there very obviously uh it's not even subtle about it right he goes on a journey there's not a mystic old there's a mystic old man it's morpheus but the mystic oracle right meets the oracle gains new powers can't uses those powers right like that's very clearly the hero's journey but there's also very clear uh references to mythology even though the wachowski sisters and the lana and lily even though they're i think self-avowed atheists there's the, the underlying message is one of a kind of 
new age techno Jesus mixed with some uh, Marxist critiques. So you yeah, have, I thought the whole like story was like biblical. Well, it, it's not meant to be biblical, but I think it plays to some of the themes of the uh, dying and resurrecting God. In many ways, what it does is it kind of fuses a, a sort of neo-pagan slash new age Christianity with a little bit of Hinduism and a lot of uh, Marxist critiques of technology, right? So you have one, you have the Neo, who is kind of the Jesus character, but he's also, in many ways, more of a Krishna character, right? Because there's been many Neos, not just one Neo, that's come yeah. over and over again. Uh, then there's also, I mean, you, very clearly in the second and third one, you have Sati, right? And Rama, whom he meets in the uh, uh, train station. Right, yeah. so there's very clear kind of uh, references there. There's also the kind of neo-pagan kind of references. Morpheus, the god of dreams, slash dream, uh, slash sleep. So there's all sorts of these kind of mixtures of mythology to create a kind of uh, a new mythos. And in many ways, that is the sort of cultural language of the internet, right? Uh, uh -huh. A little bit of mix, the basement dwellers, right? You got a bit of the hardcore Christians, a little bit of the neo-pagans, a little bit of the Hindus, all thrown in in the world of technology. So I think the Matrix reflects that. But there's also a very strong critique of society. One of the things that the, the Matrix does is it builds very heavily on the sort of uh, language of Gramsci and Althusser. These are post-Marxists that talk about hegemony and talk about uh, ideological and repressive apparatuses. What basically the Matrix is all about is the idea that in order to maintain control, what do they do? They give people the illusion of free will, right? And jokingly, um, we, we've seen this uh, re referred to in V&I's uh, favorite comedian, who is... Paul Mooney. George Carlin? No, not Paul Mooney. George, good old George, George Carlin, Carlin, right? Yeah. George Carlin jokes. He goes, you think you have freedom. You have the freedom to choose whether you want a vente or a grande. But in reality, you don't have the freedom to choose to opt out of the system. And the Matrix builds on that critique a lot. That's Althusser. That's, in fact, uh, interesting enough, when I took a history and theory class, uh, when we were reading Althusser, my professor actually showed the blue pill, red pill scene, because the idea is that once you, with Foucault, Althusser, and um, Gramsci, once you understand their critiques of society, you've taken the red pill, you can never see the world the same again. Now, interestingly enough, since the Matrix, the Matrix itself has borne out its own cultural impact. One, Morpheus became its own meme. The Neo-Woe moment became its own meme, right? But also the concept of the red pill took a life of its oh, own. Oh, yeah, that's true. The red pill, which would originally meant you know waking up to the flaws of the system. It was a Marxist critique of culture, saying that all the kind of things that you believe are artistic and cultural and, 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 and organic are all products of a system, all products of capitalism, right? All products meant to ensure and manufacture consent, to borrow Chomsky's phrase there, right? If they take that, which is fundamentally a very strong leftist critique of society, and red pilling now means waking up to this kind of alt-right scenario in which you view all forms of information as inspired by leftist critiques. So the red pill has taken off an, a life of its own. Now, here's the interesting irony, and I tell this to my students, is that the matrix actually, that red pill, blue pill moment is about what? Does anyone know what it's actually about? No. Do you guys want to take a guess? 
being in a dream or no seeing reality nope it's about being transgender huh. both the wachowski brothers were transitioning at the time hmm. or at least one of oh, them shit. was right uh, she was the, the the i think it was lily or it might have been lana but no i think it was lana lana was transitioning first and lily transitioned later but Lana was transitioning. There was already rumored by 2000 that she was, and then people were asking questions. And back in the day, the the hormone pill that you would take, HRT, hormone replacement treatment, it was a red pill. Oh, wow. So the, the red pill scenario, the red and blue pill, was literally a metaphor about waking up from this other state of the kind of constraints on society that created and normalized your body and woke up to the real world, your real body. Right, that is transitioning to your true gender. Wow. So that it's interesting how that original story is about uh, the experience of being transgender, the critique of Marxism, the rise of technology, uh, internet technology, and digital technology in particular, uh, all kind of mixed together and mythologized and added with some sort of kind of philosophical dimensions. But how that has been transformed to mean something else. So Diz and V, I think you rightly point out that. This is a new era. The critiques of of the Matrix, they're not outdated, but they do have to update them now. Mm-hmm. So now the question is, well, which direction do they take it in? Do they talk about, you know, how are they going to critique things like the rise of alt-right? Or how are they going to talk about things like it wasn't really Big Brother that was watching us all along, yeah. right? It was companies. It's like, it was great. Oh, yeah, we the, the robots are in charge and they, they've got all sorts of technology, but that's a that's a bit of a critique of the nineties and two, the early two thousands. It's Amazon now that's selling drone technology to ICE yeah, and yeah. face technology to ICE. You know what I mean? Like that. So now the question is, how do you update the metaphor? That's what I'm fascinated. That is about. true. And then also, you know, now that the Wachowski sisters have fully transitioned and have been women for, or I mean, who uh, who have society is deemed as women for however long it's taken i mean they've probably they've probably known they were women you know for however long but you know the question is um how do they write that with the scope of their experiences being trans in society as well and being completely out as being trans now well i wonder too is like can they be more explicit about it in some ways um you know because part of the part of the issue is that the 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 discuss the debate about being trans hasn't gone away, unfortunately. Yeah, that's true. Right, and in many ways, it has actually, in some places, regressed. I think the rise of gender critical studies, which is kind of a fancy word for saying uh, being transphobic mm-hmm. and using philosophy to justify it, um, but the rise of of the so called turf, right, the trans radical exclusionary feminists, yeah. Uh, rise of a Trump administration's transgender ban on the military to its new labor regulations that allow uh, empl- that are, that they're considering to allow employers to fire women that dress too masculine that's an attack on people who are trans right yeah and then of course also reinforcing even stricter gender norms and whatnot so like th- this is an issue 
that hasn't gone away. Well, homophobia is still a problem. Same-sex marriage is legalized. Yeah. Right? So to some Mm -hmm. extent, there's been a good deal of progress made in that regard, even though it's not a resolved issue by any way, shape, or form, right? In the same way that race isn't resolved. But that the issue of being transgender remains, unfortunately, a controversial issue. It is in the late 2000s that there was a ban, a bathroom ban, right, that we saw in North Carolina. So even though society has culturally moved to the point where we're seeing representations of trans women and trans men on TV, and where we're normalizing the uh, idea of transitioning, or normalizing non-binary, all these kind of things, we're kind of going, okay, these are okay, good, and acceptable, that there are still serious structural, political, and sociological problems at the forefront in the way that in the 2000s, it was far more subterranean, right? It's much more, how is the story related? It's about a hidden world, right? Uh, They meet in back alleys and they take the red pill and they wake up. So it's a very different experience than now. So I wonder if... If they, if the story can move in in a certain direction to talk more explicitly about um, maybe oppression and structural forms of oppression, maybe spending less time in the matrix and more time out of the matrix, right? Like, what does it look like when you're in those factories where you're producing batteries out of babies? Like, what about that? So yeah, I wonder how they're going to update the metaphor to reflect the uh, crises, debates, and concerns of the contemporary moment. And I think the tech concern is one, the transgender uh, concern is another, right? The struggles that transgender people face. And I think the uh, questions of, of society and protest and revolt those are all really relevant today, too. Yeah, I think either way, no matter what direction it goes, we can all agree that the Proud Boys are probably going to hate it and think it's leftist propaganda. Yeah. Here's the question. Are they going to hate it or they're going to reinterpret it in their own ways? I mean, like, I'm fascinated by the fact that red people think people actually claim to be red-pilled without even knowing what the original metaphor is or knowing it and deliberately distorting it in that way. Because much of red-pilling started as a rejection of uh, fe- the feminist movement and, tra- and the transgender movement in particular, LGBTQ more broadly, but they try to be a little bit like they try to weaponize the LGB in the, in that yeah, yeah. against the T, if you will, right? They're like, oh well, you know, uh, we support being gay, but we don't support uh, you know this dysmor- dysmorphia thing. We don't dis- we're not anti science, we're not anti biology. So there's an interesting <laughs> way in which the language gets co opted. Now, I'm wondering, like. Would they hate it or would they end up being like, oh, yeah, I'm Neo? Yeah, I know. They're going to find – I mean, you know, if they if they found a way to uh, turn Kingdom of Heaven into their own, uh, you know, into their own spank bank piece there and turn the Crusades into their own little malehood fantasy, I'm sure they'll find a way to turn the Matrix 4 into something for themselves. <laughs> but, you know, we don't need to, yeah, don't need to get into these, these soft bodies punching each other over cereal and kissing each other's butthole or whatever. Um, yeah. I want to actually end this with something positive because – you know, much like much like uh, famous uh, actor Matthew McConaughey and his abs, you know, we uh, we we find ourselves in, a, in an interesting situation where Keanu is going through a reconnaissance of his own, right? Like, wait a minute, what? You know, because like he's going through he's going through his own <laughs> renaissance. Is, like is, Keanu Reeves is going through his own. Yeah, renaissance. Wait, 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 what is what is what is his, what is Matthew McConaughey's abs have to do with No, because I, I don't think he owns an. I don't think he actually owns a shirt. I'm pretty sure all the shirts that he wears are are borrowed from the studio. Did you did you see ever see the, uh, <laughs> the like Oprah special on his where like they talk about how he lives in a trailer on on the beach and he, like he goes out and 
like he's always without a shirt and goes jogging and he does his push-ups out in the parking lot. I'm not surprised by that. Okay, he looks like he someone who does that shit. He doesn't like wear deodorant. He wears a uh, lotion and shit like that. Yeah, you know, like he's he's, he's, he's just a rich people. granola guy. Okay, it's fine. You know, I don't think he actually legitimately owns a shirt, but that's neither here nor there. I'm just saying that Keanu is actually a really good guy from what I understand. And he's going through his own resurgence after kind of seeing a lull after the end of the Matrix movies. Yeah. You know, with uh, this coming up, the John Wick movies did tons of stuff for his career. People love him again. You know, he's oh, got yeah, the new totally. Bill and Ted coming out. Speaking of remakes, right? I mean, God, this is from the uh, late 80s. You know, they're, they're, he's in a bunch of games. Yeah. You know, and then they also they talk about, you know, he's always uh, people are always talking about how he's on the subway and everything, just like riding it like regular people. Yeah. You know, well, it's, in, it's interesting, too, is like he's also suddenly because when growing up, Keanu Reeves, early Keanu Reeves was attractive to certain for some people, right? Yeah. Like Dracula, Keanu Reeves, yeah, people yeah. like that. But then people are like, and then he became unattractive when like he grew out his beard, right? No one liked Keanu. That's true when he was part but of that band. And now we're in this era where like everyone's like, oh my God, Keanu Reeves hot again. So who determines who's hot and who's not is always quite fascinating to me. But he's, he's having a really, he's having the best time of his life. And you know what? Good for him. Yeah, I'm happy for Keanu, Keanu Reeves. I, yeah. I, should, I should stop calling him by his first name. I don't know him that way, but happy for him. Keep Mr. Yeah. Reeves. I'm happy for him. He was pretty cool in uh, Always Be My Maybe. Oh, is he in that? I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen I that. I don't support Asian actors. Oh. No, that's fucked up. I'm man. only kidding. I heard, I, I heard he was good in it. People really liked it. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah, he, he's become the internet like, boyfriend. You know how there's an internet internet boyfriend every few years, right? Like it was Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, it was Benedict Cumberbatch. I think Keanu Reeves is now taking his turn as the internet boyfriend. Yeah, and they really liked him for mm-hmm. that the thing where he wasn't touching women or something in photos. It was like the no touch oh, yeah, Keanu like thing. He, he does the ghost hand. Yeah, he does what I do. I do the same thing. I either put my hands behind my back or I fake. That's true, but he's not trying to steal their soul from behind. Oh, is that what I'm That's doing? That's why I, I thought you were doing a Shang Tsung type thing. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. What's interesting is that Keanu's having a resurgence, whereas Carrie Ann Moss kind of got typecast for a while. That's true, yeah. So like after playing Trinity, which was like a, kind of a huge break for her, she, again, revolutionary. There's this moment like she was a fucking badass. I didn't know anyone who was like, yeah, Trinity's not that cool. Mm-hmm. Trinity was amazing. Everyone thought she was amazing and she was badass and really kind of demonstrated how, you know, women could become powerful leads in action flicks, right? In a way that we probably didn't see in the 90s. And in the 2000s, we really saw the kind of rise of the action star uh, carried by by female leads. You know, more obviously can be done. But also, I think it hurt her career to some extent, right? Whereas um, Keanu Reeves is having this, this kind of resurgence. Carrie Ann Moss disappeared. She did a few movies over the years. But she's always kind of played the same kind of serious, dark yeah. character. Um, and and I think she's in some ways not necessarily been typecast, but certainly Trinity hangs over her. Yeah, it's like the biggest thing that she'll ever be known for. Yeah. Even though she did really well in Memento and probably should have won an Oscar for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I like to... I, yeah. yeah, I mean, her character in that was pretty good. So it was phenomenal. Well, here's to he- hoping that Matrix 4 will jumpstart her career because if Keanu Reeves is has a, having a resurgence, let's hope to God that she has a resurgence uh, as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, we're talking about movies, so I, I figure I should bring this up because we saw it on Twitter today also. Um, Dizzy brought it to my attention, but there is a, a hashtag that's going around in our area of the world. Uh, it was Boycott Sony. 
Uh, have you heard of that, Ali? Mm. I, I didn't see the boycott Sony, but I did see the uh, uh, people talking about uh, MCU and Spider-Man and Sony's uh, issue with it. Yeah. I saw it from one of my friends on the East Coast, and that's how like I got like hip on it. So what's crazy about this is that you know, ever since we've seen Spider-Man reintroduced or, you know, introduced into the MCU. So the ones that weren't played by, was it a, a Garfield or Tobey Maguire? You know, he's, uh, the, the new the new MCU Spider-Man has, you know, become a favorite of people who are uh, Marvel fans. You know, there's a, a certain charm about it that you just could never find in the other movies, I think. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, Di- Disney's religious doctrine of having to keep to the storyline and having to create these characters yeah. to to their own vision. And uh, it's it's done a great thing for the Spider-Man character. You know, a lot of people were sick of him by the second iteration. You know, and they were oh, yeah. worried about the third iteration because they thought, man, I've seen enough of this, uh, the web slinger for a while. And, you know, we should move on to someone else. And it, it, it turned into something great when uh, once Disney Marvel took over. Yeah. And Tom, yeah, like, Tom, I didn't Holland, even, Tom Holland has done an sorry, amazing yeah, job. Yeah, exactly. Very talented. Well, I didn't even watch the um, James Garfield Spider-Mans because I was very upset after uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3. Everyone was. And like, I know like, I know Sony had a lot to do with that because Sam Raimi said he had like a lot of issues with Sony during filming that and like creating it. So like seeing Tom Holland in um, Civil War Mm -hmm. and like seeing his character, I was like, okay, this is a Spider-Man I could get behind. Right. And early listeners of this podcast know that like I am. You were traumatized by Spider-Man as a child. Mm -hmm. That's the story that you keep telling. But I was like, I'm the, the, that's your guys's you guys are more of a, a spider-man fan than i was yeah but i did really enjoy tom holland's version of spider-man or like his portrayal of spider-man and then i haven't watched far from home yet i need to to watch that i, I haven't been seen lazy that, yeah. um but homecoming was great civil war was great him and um avengers was amazing you know like he he has that 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 charm that like you want to see in a spider-man and like Sony has failed so hard with Mm Spider-Man and like the fact that far from home became like their biggest grossing movie of all time. Mm -hmm. It like, it made them not want to give up the reins. So, um, V, do you want to talk like more about why it fell apart? Like the relationship yeah, between yeah, the two of, of them? Yeah. Could you, could you give us a little bit of a background of like, well, why is this problem actually going on? All right. So, I mean, the thing about, I think the one thing that differentiates, we talked about this before, that differentiates the MCU from, you know, from other movie studios is that it does keep, a, it runs a really tight ship about making sure that everything kind of falls within a certain universe. So we literally step into a new universe, uh, you know, or into, into, into the same universe, but a different one from our own uh, when, when we go and watch their movies, right? Whereas with things like Sony or with Warner Brothers, it's like you watch a movie and it may have the same characters, but it's not necessarily running along the same lines. They omit things, things change, and it becomes kind of it, it becomes really messy. Um, what happened was that when the MCU had acquired Spider Man, they had a deal with Sony, essentially saying that uh, you know they would they would take the uh, Spider Man and you know they would create this storyline for him, and then and then they would take something like five percent of the gross day sales. So like you know they're making a a, a gross box office revenue. Right, so they're really not making a whole lot, um, according to Deadline. Right, uh, Disney wanted the next Spider-Man movies to be a fifty-fifty co-production, so Sony would take uh, half, yeah. and then they would take half. 
right? And Sony wanted to basically maintain that same deal that they had before. You know, so I mean, let's so Spider-Man: Far From Home made over a billion at the box office, right? Meaning that Holy only shit. like Disney made just over fifty million, right? So I mean, imagine though, it's like so that means Sony. Um, never mind the fact that at the MCU, Marvel made, well, you know, they made this movie, they marketed, they did all of it, and they grossed a billion. They only made five percent of of you know of a movie that they technically are responsible for. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like they want to go 50-50 and Sony doesn't want to do that. And then uh, Kevin Feige today said that, you know, he pulled out of the deal because it's like it, they don't think they're being treated fairly financially, you know, um, people. which puts everyone's favorite Spider-Man in jeopardy. So, yeah. Well, the thing is, is Tom Holland is still signed on for two more movies, right? Through his contract. He still has two more movies with Sony to be Spider-Man. Right. Um, as long as they don't like mess with that. Now the thing is, is like Kevin Feige is out as a executive producer. So that means like he doesn't have the authority to, to have them change things up. So it lets the producers over at Sony be the ones who have all the creative control. But it also and means it, that the, you will not have, uh, you'll not have Nick Fury. You'll not have Thor. You'll not have well, the crossover. We don't know yet. It says that Kevin Feige pulled out of the deal. Yeah, but if right? Kevin Feige pulls out of the deal, right? Because MCU is owned by Marvel and Disney. And if Kevin Feige pulls out of the deal, that means the MCU is out of the deal. Spider-Man becomes a Sony thing. So they can continue with Tom Holland, who's under contract. But they can't use Nick Fury in that storyline because Nick Fury is MCU and owned by, by Kevin Feige and all of them. So it does, it does mean that the... And that Spider-Man, if they don't resolve this, now that's that's the question, right? Like, it's very possible yeah. that they can negotiate something in the next few months. But if they don't negotiate something, it means that Spider-Man is not an MCU character, yeah. Or this current Which really Spider-Man throws a wrench into everything, I think, because I think Spider-Man was like the was the fixture, right? He was kind of the yeah. he was that transitioning character from like the first from the you know from the original phase from, to like the, this new one, right? He yeah. was the one that yeah. kind of went that bled through. Yeah, he's. He's the phase four character first and foremost, right? And he's the one that has been, uh-huh. in many ways, he represents us in phase four, right? Or at least yeah. the, the, I would say the audience and particularly the younger audience. Because f- what Spider-Man really did is it brought in a younger crew of people who are who are interested in watching. Uh, and those are the people that are going to continue watching for decades as, as we get older, right? So the thing uh-huh. with, with Spider-Man is he, one, is an avatar for those people. Think, why does he fanboy over everyone, right? It's like, oh my God, you're Captain America, right? He's so earnest and excited and he's young, right? He's younger uh, than, than, Sp- than the first Spider-Man was. So it's about really tapping into that audience. But he's also, as a result of that, the kind of link that leads it into phase four. He's the one that we are working through our emotions with, spoiler alert, the death of Tony Stark, right? Uh-huh. That's who he's dealing with. I mean, the, the far away in a home or whatever the fuck it's called, far away from home. Far from home. Far from home. That's all about him dealing with his emotions. That holds, right? And him also stepping up as being the sort of successor to Iron Man in in certain extent. Uh, uh-huh. So I think there's there's a problem. If he gets pulled out of the MCU, it does do something to the story. It does do something to who they're they're reaching out to be. But it's also like it just goes to show you the level of fucking greed on all sides. Seriously. I mean, literally, they make all this money. 
Yeah, it's a billion dollars yeah. of which 50 million. I mean, people are going to work their lives. Whole families will work their lives and never get close to fill 50 million dollars. And yet uh, they're arguing over it. The greed of Sony who goes, yeah, I don't want to share this. And the greed of Marvel and Disney to go, well, we want more than 50 million, right? It's, like it's just all around. Nobody's a good guy in this. Nobody comes out looking nice and all that. Yeah. And, the, so and who the- does it risk? It risks the audience. It risks the story. It risks all of that. Well, the thing is, is what pissed off Kevin Feige and what has him like pulling out now is that they didn't even send a counter offer. They just said no. And that was it, right? Like, no, either stick with what we have or that's it. Right. So I think that's what got to Kevin Feige. I don't think like, let's be real. It's a negotiation tactic. The fucker asked for 50, 50. He probably would have settled for like 28. Yeah. We'll see. But but like because they didn't want to even negotiate, he's like, I'm pulling out. And to an extent, I understand why, because Sony has had failures in the past, right? Like, let's look at their other movies that they've put out, right? Like the the last three Spider-Man movies that they did on their own were not that good, right? And then um they they also like the Venom movie. I don't know if you, if you guys watched Venom with um, what's his Tom Hardy. Mm. It was okay at best. I didn't see right. It. Like, yeah, it didn't. Like, get, I mean, honestly, the uh, I think it got like a twenty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which you know isn't a, isn't a, the greatest you know measure there, but it gives you kind of an idea of where people kind of see it. You know? Yeah. Well, and like, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought, and then I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, like they had that whole debacle where they couldn't even fucking say like symbiote, right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> like they called it symbiotes. Like they don't even know their fucking story properly. They don't know like th- their material and they're doing this kind of shit, right? So like I understand why Marvel is like upset about it, mm-hmm. right? And they want more because it's it's their Sony's biggest fucking thing up to up to this date is spider-man right and sony's been failing in the past too like in the in the past like 10 years like what they had that whole debacle with the interview and like north korea hacking their shit and stuff right like sony hasn't been looking really good as of late right well i think think there are alternatives here that are interesting i think into the spider-verse which is really interesting is that it was probably in my opinion now i like tom holland i think he's done a great job um, and I've enjoyed watching him in the MCU, but I loved Into the Spider-Verse better than, more than I loved any other Spider-Man movie. Mm. I thought Into mm. the Spider-Verse was fucking phenomenal. Story-wise, music-wise, the voice acting was great. The animation was gorgeous. I loved Into the Spider-Verse. Now, it didn't do as well as the other Spider-Man movies because it was animation and people are dumb and they don't go and watch animation movies, right? They think it's for kids mm-hmm. or whatnot. But I think there are some alternatives here. Someone was talking about how they could kill off Tom Holland with, uh, you know, have Venom kill him off or something like that, uh, and then have uh, Miles Morales step in as the new Spider-Man, right? Uh, they've already kind of introduced him with the Into the Spider-Verse, so Miles, a live-action Miles Morales is certainly uh, possible. I think, personally, that this will probably get resolved. I think it's too expensive of a venture. Yeah, there's not too much money. Resolved. Yeah, it's too much of a risk. We'll see. I could be wrong. Corporations don't act logically, right? Yeah. And the thing is, is but Disney holds the power here, right? Whereas like Sony thinks they hold the power because they have 
you know, the rights to Tom Holland and like this version of Spider-Man, at least for the next two like Spider-Man movies. But DC just bought Fox, right? Yeah. And they have Deadpool now. They have the X-Men now. Like they have uh, you mean Fantastic. MCU? Oh, Disney, Disney. I thought you said DC. Yeah. No, no, no Disney. Yeah. I'm, I may have said DC, my fault. My brain goes to the East Coast. But um, like they they hold all the cards with like they still have these big franchises that are going to put hundreds of millions, if not maybe a billion dollars in their wallets too, right? Mm. I think Sony needs uh, Disney and Marvel and the MCU more than like the Disney MCU needs Spider-Man. Don't get me wrong. They, I, I think they need, um, you know, Sony Spider-Man, but not as much as Sony needs them. Mm. Mm. At least in my yeah. opinion. No, I think, I think it's true. We'll see. I think there's there's enough risk here that they'll probably end up negotiating, but but who knows? I mean, you look at, I mean, you look at Sony's kind of set, because they're actually, you know, they, they mentioned Sony's Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Sony MCU, and it's pretty pathetic, honestly, like outside of, because when they had, when Spider-Man 2 came out, the one with uh, Jamie Foxx, you know, they, they had expected to create uh-huh. like a whole like empire of spin-offs based on like Craven the Hunter and you know the Sinister Sticks and all these other all these other characters in the Spider Man universe, but they had failed, you know, to, to get capture any really box office eyes mm-hmm. that they kind of scrapped mm-hmm. it, right? And I think that was for them they realized that probably there wasn't much they could do from there. So I think there was they're like, okay, if we hand it over to Disney Marvel, something might be able to c- come out of it. You know, while mm-hmm. they were doing this, though, they're you know they made Venom because you know, and and you know that that was part of their uh, you know that's part of their MCU, and then they plan on doing or they already made it's in post production now, uh, Morbius the Living Vampire, you know, which is set to come out next year, you know, and so far those are the only titles in the Mar- yeah, Marvel yeah. universe that they have, and it's you know it's not looking great honestly because I like Venom, the movie wasn't great. Morbius is like such a, a random character to choose from. I don't understand how they decided to go with the vampire guy, especially when there's, you know, we got Blade going, coming going around in the MCU. <laughs> like, what are they supposed to do with that exactly? We'll, we'll see what's going to happen. I mean, these corporations, they they think they know what they're doing, but in the end, it's all a bunch of kind of fucking inner circle shit, and they never hear outside perspectives or, or, or really someone go, hold on a minute, this might be a weird you know, decision to make. So th- that's, that's where we'll leave it today. Uh, we'll revisit this probably a couple times as the story develops, because I think it is an interesting one and there's a lot to break down and examine further, especially in the relationship between Spider-Man, and the MCU, what's going to happen story arc wise, etc. cetera. Um, but let us know what your thoughts are. You can hit us up on social media and whatnot. What do you think about matrix for you excited about this new one? Uh, did you know about some of the metaphors we discussed? Is there a particular story arc that you want them to go a direction that you want them to go with matrix for and what do you think about the sony mcu thing it seems to be a, a bit of cutting off your nose in spite of your face type thing um but we'd love to hear from you and diz will let you know how you can do that i like how you use the term from like the first aladdin uh animation where they cut off your nose just to, in spite of your face um but you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash currently nerdy. We're on Twitter at currently nerdy, Instagram at currently nerdy, Tumblr, currently nerdy.tumblr.com, YouTube, youtube.com slash currently nerdy. We're on Stitcher, Google Play, and the iTunes podcast app under currently nerdy. Um, make sure you uh, 
are subscribed to us there and make your friends subscribe to us as well. If you want to get a hold of us individually, you can. V, how can they get a hold I'm of you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at VTran214. That's V-Y-T-R-A-N-214 on my website, thesandwichslayer.com, Ali. You can catch me on my website at alialomi.com or on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. You can find kind of the behind the scenes of Head on History on my uh, Instagram. And on Twitter, you can catch up on some of my really interesting new threads that I've been doing on kind of like the esoteric aspects of Islam from the jinn, etc. Or on our sister podcast, Head on History. Diz. You can find me everywhere at Dizbullah, D-I-Z-B-U-L-L-A-H. For everyone here at Currently Nerdy, thank you for tuning in. And remember, stay smart, sexy nerds. All hail the Currently Nerdy Empire.